You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 1st of March, 2024. Turkey takes an ever closer interest in Somalia. The Freeze Art Fair fires up in Los Angeles and the somewhat familiar-looking future of libraries. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers whose darts missed the board by the greatest distance are Hannah Lucinda Smith, Chris Lord and Nick Moniz. They'll discuss the day's stuff, and we'll have live music from Buffalo Nichols. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. Somalia has long presented the rest of the world with a major geostrategic headache, a more or less failed state which also presides over one of Earth's more crucial shipping routes. Turkey has signalled a willingness to help. Earlier this week, Turkey and Somalia signed a defence and economic cooperation agreement under which Turkey will help rebuild Somalia's navy and help protect Somalia's coast in the meantime. The deal follows, pointedly, something broadly similar between the breakaway Somali region of Somaliland and Ethiopia, which went down sensationally badly in Mogadishu. I'm joined now by Hannah Lucinda Smith, Monocle's Istanbul correspondent. Um, Hannah, first of all, I assume this is not an exercise in charitable outreach by Turkey. So what does Turkey get out of this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think President Erdogan might like to frame it as uh, a charitable exercise. I mean, certainly he's been a world leader who's been far more interested than most in Somalia. Back in 2011, he was the first uh, head of state to visit Somalia uh, after its civil war, which broke out in 1991. Uh, the Turkish embassy was one of the first to reopen there. Now we have uh, Turkey's biggest embassy in the world uh, in Mogadishu that was opened in 2016. And already, even before this deal, Turkey uh, had already opened a military training academy, huge huge military base in Mogadishu as well. Now, it's not all about charity, of course. Part of it is, you know, this is very, very profitable for Turkey. Um, there's an estimated $100 million worth of Turkish investment in Somalia. That includes uh, assets such as Mogadishu Airport, Mogadishu Seaport. They're both run by Turkish companies. Um, now, in order for them to uh, be successful, obviously the trade routes need to be open. And um, one of the things that this deal is about is about securing maritime security and ensuring uh, that those shipping routes do stay open. Um, but more widely, you know, I don't think it is a coincidence that this deal has come so soon after that deal between Ethiopia and uh, Somaliland. Um, both Turkey and Somalia have really stressed that it has nothing to do with it. But it's, yeah, as you said, it, that deal did not go down well in Mogadishu at all. And it's quite difficult to, to imagine that this isn't somehow linked. Uh, is it perhaps also linked to the fact that that shipping lane that Somalia overlooks is now menaced uh, in both directions with the the recent attacks by Houthi rebels based in Yemen on passing shipping? Is Obviously, the Suez Canal is possibly even more important to Turkey than it is to most countries. That would be how most Turkish sea freight gets anywhere. Is, is this Turkey also attempting to protect its own interests? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's entirely understandable. That's also what uh, the UK is trying to do in, in the Red Sea. It's, um, you know, one of the, the kind of main aims of any navy in the world. This is a really, really important trade route. But I think, yeah, more important to Turkey than to other countries because Turkey has taken such an interest in Somalia from so early on. And uh, you can debate about why that is. I mean, part of it, of course, is that Somalia is also a Muslim country. President Erdogan is very keen to promote himself as a kind of figurehead for Muslims, not just in Turkey, but all across the region. Um, also, uh, there is a, a strong Muslim Brotherhood presence there in the politics there. That plays very well into Erdogan's particular type of political Islam, Islamism. He's got some very good political friends there. Um, but yeah, really, I think that you know, Turkey sees this as, you know, almost its backyard. Um, you know, it's a place where uh, it has a history uh, in the Ottoman Empire period. It has a history there. Um, you know, also these cultural links um, and also the trade links that have been built up over the past 10 years. And, and obviously Turkey wants to protect that. Is there also an element of it fitting into a broader pattern of Turkish interest in Africa? Obviously, in recent years, we have seen Turkey take an extremely close interest in, well, a no more or less failed state than Somalia, i.e. Libya. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Turkey is not the only state to do that. Also, you know, it, when we look at the uh, Ethiopia-Somaliland deal, that was done with the support of the UAE. It's, you know, there are Gulf countries as well that are um, increasingly interested in Africa, also Russia. Um, and I think this is something that's, you know, quite overlooked quite often. You know, people talk about uh, the sort of great power competition in places like Ukraine, um, but this is going on in Africa as well. Now, you know, Turkey um, and President Erdogan have really tried to expand Turkey's global presence. Um, both through soft power and then recently also through hard power as well. Um, and I think you know, it is part of that. But I don't think it's just all about hard power. You know, the interesting thing is, you know, Turkey is also one of the major mediating powers between Somalia and Somaliland. And President Erdogan has said, you know, not just uh, in Somalia, not just in this region, but also in places like Ukraine, also in Gaza, that he wants Turkey to be this kind of mediating country. He sees that as kind of Turkey's role in the world. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next few months and years. Just finally, uh, Hannah, other countries, notably the United States, have learnt the hard way that involving oneself in Somalia can be difficult and dangerous. Is this outreach by Turkey to Somalia at all controversial in Turkey? Is it, is it a political issue in the slightest? Yeah, I mean, Turkey, generally, Turkey's more outward-looking foreign policy over the past 10 years is controversial. One thing that a lot of Turks are really angry about is the extent to which Turkey has got involved in conflicts like Syria, um, to a lesser extent Libya, but particularly Syria. You know, the idea that Turkish soldiers are being sent to fight in a war that a lot of Turks really don't feel is much to do with them. I think, you know, this is less controversial because you don't have that kind of, uh, you know, Turkish troops at risk. That's the main thing. Thing that kind of stirs passions here. But I think, you know, certainly, um, you know, there are people, particularly within the opposition to Erdogan, who say, look, why are we doing this? You know, our, um, when Turkey was founded, the one of the founding principles, uh, it was a slogan called peace at home, peace in the world. And that was the idea that you kind of secure your own borders, you secure peace in your own homeland, and you don't really interfere with what's going on outside unless it's directly threatening you. And clearly under President Erdogan, that's really, really changed. Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul, thank you for joining us on The Daily. 
You are listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio, and it's time now for one of our semi-regular roundups of urbanism news, for which I am joined by Monocle's design editor, Nick Manise. Um, Nick, there is going to be a building demolished on Oxford Street here in London. There is going as, to be As somebody who regularly has to cross Oxford <laughs> Street, I can only say, that's a good start. Yeah, so you're, you're pleased with this? I mean, hang on, we should fill the no, listeners I'm, I'm in. I'm in favour of, like, all of Oxford Street being demolished. All right, demolished, demolished actually, yeah. just, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I'm to be honest, I am completely with you now. I will go out of my way. I will spend an extra 15 minutes on my commute to avoid Oxford Street. But It, it, is, it is awful. Is this news going to improve it in any way? Uh, probably not. Andrew, if anything, it's going to put Put more footfall onto the traffic, uh, on, onto onto the street, and uh, you know more shoppers probably getting in your way uh, as you're just trying to take your leisurely lunchtime stroll and cigarette, no doubt, uh, <laughs> along Oxford Street. Um, no, but the so the so in the UK the High Court has ruled. So this is an ongoing saga. Mm-hmm. So it is the Marks and Spencer building on Oxford Street. A few years ago, they announced plans to demolish it um, uh, to build, put in a new uh, flagship store. That was then blocked by the Housing and Community Secretary, Michael Gove, uh, who rejected the plans. That obviously then went through court, as these things do, and the High Court has rejected Gove's decision uh, and basically said Marks and Spencer can continue with their demolition and rebuild jobs. So it's it's kind of... um, it's caused a little bit of drama, as you'd imagine. People want away, and this is quite the, the the current Marks and Spencer building is this kind of iconic Art Deco structure, um, and it's going to be uh, yeah bulldozed for this newer ten story ten story structure. I don't know. Have you seen renderings of it? Do you have a feeling either way? Uh, it's just going to be another glass and steel mm. thing, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, but o- much o- of a muchness. O- Oxford Street is is dreadful, and I don't think really anything much is going to they do to it is going to make it any less dreadful, other than just doing what the mayor has been wittering about doing for about 300 years and just pedestrianising it, which is what a sane city would have done by now. Because I I think that's the other funny thing. You barely almost look at the buildings because you spend your whole time trying to dodge... um, Well, you spend your whole time basically trying to spend as little time on Oxford Street as you possibly can. Um, Moving along to Beijing, where there is a beautiful new library, Um, it's just a shame it's not in a city where they might be allowed to put some books in it. Yes, Andrew, and that is a very astute observation. Uh, Schneheta, who are an amazing uh, uh, architecture practice based in Norway and the US, they've got offices spread across the globe, um, actually Monocle's reigning Architects of the Year from our Design Awards. But they uh, they uh, have designed a host of libraries across the globe and this latest edition, uh, which you imagine the, uh, the book selection might not be as diverse as in other locations. But uh, this new edition is, uh, I guess, another outstanding structure in terms of they really set benchmarks for what architecture has the potential to be and they're really savvy about uh, incorporating environmental features and technological features into their design so I think what what makes this one particularly special and particularly exciting uh, is uh, the fact that so it's it's they've got 52 really tall columns kind of, uh, I guess, holding aloft this, this canopy. And those those columns uh, define the spaces within the building. And within those columns, there's technology that controls uh, the, the temperature inside, but also lighting and helps to manage acoustics. Uh, but then those columns also double as a rainwater filtration and collection system, uh, which is then used uh, to irrigate the surrounding area. So there's, there's a lot going on in what actually appears as a very simple structure. See, it did look 
actually, from the pictures, quite familiar to me. It reminded me of the Library at Alexandria. And to be clear, I don't mean the original Library of Alexandria destroyed in 642 AD by Caliph Omar. I'm not that old. But the one that is in Alexandria now, which I have been to, and is a beautiful, bright, airy building that does look a bit like this. Well, it is by them as well. well um, so, so they've, they've that would clearly, explain that. They've clearly, they've clearly got a... Uh, a a uh, stick. Yeah, a stick. And, and I think uh, that's quite common for architecture studios to have they have a they have a very consistent style that runs through it i mean that's certainly responding to place but there's a consistency there i mean can i ask just quickly are you annoyed about the beijing library because your books probably aren't going to be in it <laughs> is that what this is really about is um, that why you were in alexandria uh, my books weren't in the library in alexandria either um, and yes i looked uh, no no to be honest not massively overstocked the library in alexandria either beautiful building however um nick finally uh, we have a story from florida um they think or the pitch here is that the highway underpass can be a thing of beauty. God, I love Florida so much. <laughs> so much. I mean, this is... Uh, look, I, the, I have my doubts. The the intention is really pure, and I think that's really, really nice. Um, so basically... This I mean, there's, there's an illustration here, Nick, of people just hanging out. Uh, underneath in, the highway. In a highway underpass. There's the, it's like people are just pushing prams around with their kids. They're hanging out. They're having fun in a highway underpass. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of a shocker. So it's the city of Orlando have approved the construction of a, of a space called The Canopy. It's going to be up by ACOM, who are quite a well-respected international, um, you know, architecture and design <laughs> they and engineering are, they firm. Are for the moment. <laughs> but, I mean, this is maybe this is why they, they're turning their hand to it, because they're like, you know, well, maybe this is possibly the worst and most challenging project we've ever taken on. But I, I do also have my doubts. So basically, underneath... Uh, this uh, the, these series of, of highways. There's, there's a couple that cut through uh, this um, intersection. It, they've left a 10-acre space, which is absolutely, uh, you know, quite significant in size. It's about the size of four city blocks. Uh, and ACOM are going to put in some tree-like artworks uh, and some seating because who doesn't love sitting underneath the highway and, and they think that they're going to host <laughs> events and festivals there. See, I, I, I wish these illustrations were a bit more authentically Florida. Like, mm. I, I wish they had photoshopped or AI'd in some naked guy wrestling with a crocodile just, Mag- just in the background Sorry, somewhere. Florida or Western Australia? Sometimes I get confused. Uh, well, I mean, Western Australia is very much the Florida of Australia, Nick. I, I feel uh, like as, I'm only allowed to say that as, given I'm West Australian. Don't punch down on us, Andrew, uh, please. As, as, well, what other direction is there? I mean, because uh, uh, I guess my, my, my final point on this is the thing that's kind of nuts about it is they spent a fortune rebuilding this interstate highway. Mm-hmm. Uh, intersection created even more, I guess, underground uh, space, and they're now sinking money into making that space hopefully inhabitable. I mean, to me, obviously, it costs far, far more to sink the highway, but the ambition with with this is to connect the neighbourhoods. Like that's really what this is about. Surely, if you pulled the money together, maybe even put, you know, managed to find some more federal funding, you could have sunk it and made a far nicer urban environment rather than what is really putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> Nick Manise, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio.
This is The Daily on Monocle Radio with me, Andrew Muller, and we are now off to Los Angeles, where it has been a busy week for the city with the return of the Freeze Art Fair. Back for the second consecutive year, the event is taking place at the Santa Monica Airport. It features nearly 100 exhibitors and thousands of attendees, and among that throng was Monocle's own US editor, Chris Lord, who joins me now from Los Angeles. Uh, Chris, good morning where you are. Um... There are, of course, art fairs in pretty much every city in the world, it often feels like. Certainly you could spend your entire life bouncing around the world from one to another. I suspect there are people who do. Um, How is this one different? It's a good question, Andrew, because I think in a way you have to... I have to set the picture for you a little bit yesterday. There was the fair opening to the VIP crowd, to the press as well. Uh, As you mentioned, it's at Santa Monica Airport for the second year. And it's just a kind of wild environment there. And what I mean by that is you've got, first of all, you've got an incredible um, throngs of people, thousands of people descending on this little airport that's really intended only for small aircrafts. All these people trying to get in, which immediately snarls up all the streets around it. So there's this kind of expectation. It's almost like arriving at a kind of music festival where people are sort of walking for miles through kind of like very... Uh, sort of unpleasant looking kind of peripheries of the airport. And then when you kind of get in, it's it's sort of, it's, it's a very sort of charged atmosphere. There's small planes flying overhead. There's Matthew McConaughey's walking around. There's a kind of, uh, a, a sort of energy in the air of, of a sort of stock exchange when you walk actually into the fair itself. There's sort of worried looking people walking around with phones pinned to their ears. People making sales and lots of sales yesterday on the day in the first few hours of the fair opening. Um, and you could pick it up. I mean, it's just palpable. You know, there is a sort of, there is this kind of feeling, I think, at Freeze LA, which is, you know, how did this, you know, it's five years since the actual fair did its very, very first iteration. And there just, there was just such a market that they've tapped into that you just feel it yesterday. And that ranges from, uh, you know, actual private collectors through to the big institutions. So you have so many museums here in Los Angeles that are actively collecting contemporary art and have big endowments for that. Now, I grabbed just a few minutes with Christine Missanio, uh, who's director of uh, Freeze for the Americas and also at the head of the fair, and she gave me a bit of a sit rep yesterday. I happened to walk in maybe about an hour ago and I met someone who had just walked in the door and they were probably two booths in and they had already purchased three works. So, you know, I think that there is exceptional work that people are seeing immediately upon entering the fair and it's going to wonderful collections. So much has been made in the last couple of years about major galleries opening outposts here in Los Angeles. But there's another story, I think, here, which is about smaller outfits originally coming from here, having their first galleries here. Talk me through that, Christine. What's happening here in Los Angeles with that in mind in terms of an ecosystem that can support smaller operations that are not doing just an outpost here of their New York space. I feel like that's such an important part of actually what's happening here and it's one that's often being overlooked but we have amazing galleries there's a young woman Sarah Hartman who opened a gallery called Seaview you also see galleries like Francois Gabali who are opening up secondary spaces there is still a young market that has extended outside of just like the garage or the apartment spaces, you know, which LA has such an amazing history of, but those gallerists are opening spaces that are are serious spaces and choosing LA as their first point because there is a world of artists here 
There's a world of critics, there's amazing institutions, and there's a collector base. Uh, And Chris, have you been among those excitable people hastening to put little red dots on the exhibits? Have Have you bought anything to cheer up the place? So I haven't dropped uh, several hundred thousand dollars yesterday, Andrew, <laughs> um, before talking to you. But there were some incredible sales, really. And just uh, just a very brief look at what they were. I mean, two million dollars dropped on a, a Richard Serapis by a private collector uh, picking that up from Gladstone Gallery. And to have that on an opening day of a fair, not going to an institution, going into a private collection, two million dollars, quite extraordinary. There were big sales for Anselm Kiefer uh, by Thaddeus Ropak Gallery. Also, great piece by the British Guyanese artist. Frank Bowling uh, called Fishes Wishes in Summertime. Beautiful piece it was. I actually caught my eye while I was walking around as well. Sold for $800,000 by uh, Hauser and Worth yesterday. But it's not, you know, you have to remember it's not just about the kind of buying and selling there. And I think that they're, you know, the, this year the fair is a little bit smaller. They've, they've reduced it down to just over 90 galleries. And they've also kind of reined in some of the sort of wilder elements of consumerism that were visible just this time last year. You know, last year they were offering laser facials on the, on the side of the, of, the, of the art fair and things like that. And there's still a little bit of, you know, you can still buy a luxury watch on the sidelines. But it still it feels a little bit more focused this year. Um, feels a bit stronger. I was really struck by just a few things in the quieter corners. Great local gallery called Babst. Um, who had great works by an artist called Henry Fonseca, which plays with sort of uh, indigenous imagery from this part of America, uh, coupled with a sort of consumerism and cartoons. Really beautiful work that is. Uh, Also some um, great canvases by uh, an artist called Beaufort Delaney from the mid-century, who was a great friend of James Baldwin's. Beautiful pieces these these were. But I also, when you first walked in, uh, there was a great booth by a real pioneer of the LA art scene, uh, a, a guy called Tim Blum. Uh, he, for many years, has run a, a space since the 90s called Blum & Poe, recently renamed Blum Gallery as it sort of moves into its new uh, iteration. And I asked him a little bit about, you know, when you walk around the fair yesterday, you see all these galleries now that say where their outposts are, and they say, you know, Berlin, London, Los Angeles, and you see Seoul, Vienna, Los Angeles. And that, I think, for a gallerist like him was incredible because L.A. for so long was a city where artists made things but didn't really sell them. I'd say the more the merrier. It's just a reaffirmation of L.A. as an arts capital. It was always that L.A. was the capital because of the artists, which is still the case. But hand in hand with that, gratefully, institutional changes occurred. Obviously, the inclusion of new galleries coming from all over the place, including young galleries being built from ground up here, coupled with collecting. Being here at the fair today with, as you well see, thousands of people pouring through and actively looking and buying today in the last, you know, three, four hours. It's quite dramatic. You made a great point that L.A. was a city for artists. It was a place where people could work and live and live pretty well and have the space to have big studios and so on. I look around your booth, I see think of great artists like Lauren Quinn, very much up and coming, uh, but also making huge strides institutionally as well. Of course, she lives here in Los Angeles, but is it a city still that people can live like that as a, as a young artist trying to build up their career from scratch? Is it still that place as it gets more and more expensive here? Absolutely. The thing about L.A. is differentiated from London or from New York or other big urban centers. L.A. is a horizontal landscape. We still have a lot of space to expand into and artists know this and are expanding from Gardena to the valley to the east side we have plenty of room I say fucking bring it on 
That was Tim Blum speaking to our Los Angeles editor, Chris Lord, at Freeze. You are listening to The Daily. And finally, on today's show, live music. The blues as a genre is arguably ill-served by many of its modern custodians, who often seem to regard it more as a museum exhibit to be carefully polished and fussily dusted, rather than a living thing which may care to be let off the leash every so often. No such inhibitions daunt Buffalo Nichols. The Milwaukee-born, Texas-based songwriter visited Midori House during his recent tour in support of his tremendous new album, the fatalist, I began by asking him how he has recently caused an amount of vexation among the purse-lipped blues purists. It might have to do with being a dark-skinned person with an opinion. That seems to be pretty upsetting to a lot of people. The obvious rejoinder to which that the blues was, of course, developed, patented, invented by dark-skinned people with opinions. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to talk a bit about your journey to the blues. If I've got it right, you're from Texas via Wisconsin, but on the musical journey, the blues wasn't necessarily your first stop? Uh, No, not really. I came to it seriously, my late teens, I would say. But the first music that I was really trying to dissect and understand was, I guess, like rock music and just the mainstream guitar music. So what was the first point of connection with the blues? What was the first thing you ran across that really sang to you and made you think, okay, this is what I should be doing? The first time I became aware of the music as a genre when I was pretty young was, uh, there were three artists in particular. One was uh, Robert Cray. There was an album that my mom had and a B.B. King album as well. And then there was a... Chuck Berry, I had this little guitar pamphlet that taught you how to play Johnny Be Good. So I kind of discovered Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf through Chuck Berry, really. But then later on, it just became more fitting because I wanted to just travel and play music. So through a bunch of other different paths, I just settled on the blues. But was it important to you to embrace, I guess, and project the blues as still a living thing, that it wasn't some museum piece? And the Robert Cray influence, I had read about it, and I wondered if he in particular was an inspiration in that direction, because when he was having big hit records, they sounded like modern records. They didn't sound like something that had been recorded on a back porch in Alabama at around the time of the Civil War. They sounded like actual modern pop records. Yeah, it really wasn't my intention at first. At first, it was just music that I liked, and I had always liked music that wasn't popular or mainstream. It just seemed like another thing. It wasn't a well-known style of music like any other style of music. But it wasn't until I started going to the shows and playing blues shows that I understood that there's what they call the purists, people who have (laughs) these expectations. And that kind of got on my nerves, and that's when I really started saying, like, the goal of this music isn't to like satisfy some weird fetish you have of like sounding like it's 1950. Like, <laughs> it's a tool for creative expression, and it should stay that way. But was that to the extent that you may have been trying to make a point? The point you were trying to make with on your new album, The Fatalist, there's a, a fantastic cover of Blind Willie Johnson's You're Gonna Need Somebody on Your Bond, which was recorded, I think, in the 1920s, maybe, originally. Yeah, it's been 29 or something yeah, like that. And, yeah, and, but you've recorded it, again, it sounds like a modern record. There's electronic drum on it. Was it important to you to demonstrate that this is still a living thing? Yeah, and that was really just a point I was trying to prove to myself. 
because for so long I was thinking about what the music could sound like and what it should sound like. So I just took my own personal influences and just used the form because the form is still in so much music that we know and considered modern. But for some reason, it's harder for people to see that link. So to take an actual blues song that was recorded in the 1920s and give it that modern production, I think I was trying to make it a little more obvious that the root of all of it, or a lot of it, is the blues. Just finally then, if you could introduce for us the song you're going to do for us. I'm going to play a a song called The Difference. It's an interesting one, this. It strikes me as actually quite close to that overlap between blues and country. I was also thinking very much of Dylan. There's a lot of don't think twice, it's all right, certainly in the sentiment, I think. Uh, I've made a point to never listen to Bob Dylan. I still haven't, (laughs) so I'm trying to keep it that way. (laughs) But it's just like, yeah, a folk song, and folk and blues crosses over a lot. And I just also wanted to prove, to just demonstrate songwriting is a big part of what I do, and it's not just blues and whatever people want to say. I like to just write songs. Let's hear it. Thank you for joining us. When it came time to write your story, I was barely mentioned. Just a minor role, a place you'd go when you needed attention. But if I'm just a rest stop for your soul, I'll let it be. I just don't know the difference Between love and company And the sun don't always shine on me But I know that it's there And it don't care if we live or die But the light is ours to share And now both of us are bleeding And the pain is mine to bear And I'm too weak to even speak or ask you to be fair When it comes time to write my story You'll get your own chapter I'll tell the tale of how I fell And landed in disaster But you can be the hero comes to rescue me Cause I just don't know the difference between love and sympathy And the sun don't always shine on me But I know that it's there And it don't care if we live or die But the light is ours to share And it's only you who's bleeding But the pain is mine to bear And I'm too weak to even speak or ask you to be fair And I never complained But it didn't mean I was incapable of feeling pain And I stayed in my place I knew you were no good, but you'd be so hard to replace. Well, it must be time to end this story, for you have sprouted wings. I'll go back to my solitude, you'll go find better things. But if you should grow tired on the road that lies ahead,
I hope you won't forget the one who kept your ego fed. And the sun don't always shine on me, but I know that it's there. And it don't care if we live or die, but the light is ours to share. And now both of us are bleeding, and the pain is mine to bear. And we're both weak, but I at least am somewhat self-aware. That was Buffalo Nichols. His new album is called The Fatalist. And if you are listening to us in his hometown of Milwaukee, he's on at the Vivarium tomorrow night. Don't miss that. Uh, that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Hannah Lucinda Smith, Nick Manise, Christopher Lord and Buffalo Nichols. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rebello and researched by Neoma Equay. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Andrew Muller. I'll be back on Monday. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend. <laughs>